Hello again, all you podsters, and welcome to another edition of Money Talks and Bullshit Walks, the history of Philadelphia from 1980 to present. Green to Kenny. I'm your host, Peter Burson. With me, as always, at MTBW is our Swiss Army knife, Joe Willard. Joe texts, he acquires guests, and of course, he deals with our Zoom account. Say hello, Joe. Hey, hello, everybody. Today, our guest is Frederick. Frederick. Frederick's going to We can edit that. Try again. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's Diedrich. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> Fred is going to discuss a number of topics uh, and the Philadelphia, their relationship to the Philadelphia business community. We're going to talk about the organization known as Philadelphia, Greater Philadelphia First, and its emergence in the 90s uh, business community. We're going to also talk briefly about uh, redlining the past, the present, and the future. And we'll also talk about uh, the hiring of David Hornbeck. I guess that was back in uh, 94 or 95 uh, as the school superintendent. Before we get started, though, uh, the Potsters have continued to wonder about the whereabouts of our legal talent, Bombastic Bushkin. Now, my sources have told me he's in Aruba. Uh, his luggage and passport were stolen while he was sleeping in a lounge. He was waiting for a flight. After that, I don't know anything. Nevertheless, uh, we paid Bombastic for his sage legal advice. And I will again remind you that we are not historians, we are not journalists, although we've had past and current journalists uh, join us here at MTBW. They make no greater claim than we do. We deal in urban legends. You can just view us as a bunch of friends sitting around a Zoom, having an adult beverage, maybe like a Heineken, and talking trash about the city that loves you back. The land of the giants, as former Inquiry columnist Steve Lopez wrote, uh, I think he wrote it on more than one occasion. Uh, Joe, I, I would like to make one final uh, note. Fred, I, I don't know if you know this either. Uh, yesterday or the day before was Philadelphia's 339th birthday. In 1682, Billy Penn sailed up to Delaware and signed the necessary documents that established Pennsylvania as a colony and Philadelphia as its capital. And as you know, the rest is urban legend. Uh, so tonight I'm going to turn the podcast over to Joe and Fred, and I'll uh, raise my hand if I want to jump in and ask something stupid. Thanks a lot, Peter. Everybody, tonight we got a special guest, Fred Dietrich. I'm very excited to, that Fred is on. Fred and I worked together at the Reinvestment Fund back in the uh, 2007 uh, time when... A lot of changes were happening in Philadelphia and all. So I'm really excited that Fred has joined us. Fred is a, although he's not a native Philadelphian, he has certainly put his mark on Philadelphia since the 1970s and all. And there's a lot of great changes and a lot of, he worked with a lot of great organizations, bringing a lot of good change uh, to Philadelphia and all. So one, one, one of the uh, unsung heroes perhaps, but certainly a hero in, in, in a lot of organizations and certainly with me. Fred, thanks for coming on. I'd like to start out with the first question. Give us a, a little bit of a quick history on how you got to Philadelphia and, and what did you do when you got here? Thanks, Joe. It's great to be here and great to be working with you again. You and Peter really do a, a, a tremendous service to, to Philadelphia to do these podcasts because this, this kind of uh, history will soon be forgotten and mm -hmm. it's good to have it recorded and, and uh, for posterity. 
So I came to Philadelphia in, uh, in 1973, actually. I was, I was hired by a organization in Philadelphia called the Action Alliance of Senior Citizens. And the reason I came to Philadelphia is that I'd been trained at the Saul Alinsky School in Chicago, the Industrial Areas Foundation School. And they uh, recruited me from uh, a job that I had in Salt Lake City, Utah. And uh, they brought me, they said, there's a couple of possibilities for you to work. And one of them was in Philadelphia. And uh, since I was from the East Coast, I wanted to come back East. So I took the job and I stayed with the Action Alliance uh, not too long, probably about eight months. And we worked on a number of projects. Frank Rizzo was the mayor and Frank Rizzo and the Action Alliance actually got along quite well. The, uh, the Action Alliance was made up of, of senior leaders. We had a great chairman and a guy named Frankie Bradley, who was a tremendous leader and who helped to bring the uh, Catholic clubs and the Jewish clubs and the uh, African-American clubs together into, a, into an alliance that really had some heft and power. And they uh, were able to convince Philadelphia, elect, uh, Philadelphia Gas Works to provide a 20% reduction for seniors uh, for gas work, for gas bills. I left there at an offer by the Jewish Community Relations Council to come up to Logan and work as a community organizer in a neighborhood that was undergoing a lot of transition. Um, and it was a neighborhood with a, with a rising crime rate, a lot of disorganizations, people moving out, new people moving in, a lot of tension. And the, the Jewish Community Relations Council had wanted me to work with some of the folks up there. They had a couple of synagogues up there that were, that were feeling uh, some pressure and that they wanted to be safe, wanted to focus on safety. So I come up there and I began working uh, as a community organizer and uh, helped to organize a lot of block clubs. And we were trying to create, you know, a, a more cohesive neighborhood. Uh, one, of the, one of my heroes of all times is a woman named Dorothy Friedman who was at JCRC at the time. Bert Siegel was there. He was a great guy, mm -hmm. really did, really did yeah. great work. And JCRC was, was just really in the thick of trying to fight for neighborhoods at that time. Uh, I wanted to go up there and I, since I was trained by the Alinsky folks, I thought I'd start working right on some big issues like redlining and, you know, at abandoned houses. But the bottom line was my first issue was tree pruning. Uh, tree, and that pruning. Was tree pruning, yes. Tree pruning, because, you know, the idea is if you go, if you ask people what they want, they want brighter streets. And so that's what we worked on. So we got the trees cut, then we got new street lights, and then eventually we started working on the abandoned houses. There was about 300 abandoned houses there. There was also blockbusting going on in a big way. There was a lot of racist uh, literature being handed out to the families who were there saying that African-American families were moving in, you better sell your house to us. They got into some uh, FHA problems. Fast foreclosure was going on. It was a, it was a it was a really a quick education for a 25 year old who had just been out in Salt Lake City, which is a very different place, of course. A little bit. Right. Uh, Let me ask you a question. Did you have any dealings with the sinking houses of Logan? No, actually, you know, it's really interesting, Peter. There was some. I, I remember Warnock Street very very well. The 4900 right. block of Warnock had. There was a block captain there named Wanda Allen, and she was married to a police officer named Horace Allen. Great, great family. Loved them very much. And at the end of their block, there were some houses that, be, that began to look like they were tipping, not seriously. And it wasn't until many, many years later that we discovered that the, uh, 
I think it was the Wingahawken Creek had been filled with ashes. And when the, when the, when the ashes, you know, were, were uh, borne away by the water, the houses sunk. And the, the, it was really a tragedy, terrible tragedy for Logan. From there, we began to organize with a variety of other communities in, in Hunting Park and Kensington and West Oak Lane and Mount Airy, and wound up putting together something called COACT, which is called Community Organizations Acting Together. Mm. And we, were, we began to work on a bunch of issues. And our big issue was HUD abandoned houses, because at that time, the houses that were uh, foreclosed by FHA when, uh, were left abandoned. And so they were, they were becoming houses of, you know, they were coming crack houses and houses, you know, that where people were breaking into and the houses next to them were being deteriorating. So that was our, that was our big issue. Um, from there, I, I, I really sort of decided that I needed a break and I became a consultant to the National Commission on Neighborhoods and actually the Law Assistance Administration, LEAA, Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, worked on, on using block organizing as a way to combat crime. And eventually, I wound up getting working in Germantown for a group called the Abandoned Properties Action Group of Germantown. I took a little detour. I worked as a organizer of the boarding home advocacy team called BAT. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys remember, but uh, Governor Thornburg deinstitutionalized Byberry. And, and the theory was, we'll get all these poor people out of these awful homes like Byberry and Norristown State, and we'll put them into the community and they'll get served much better. Well, that's another, the failure about good intentions is really, that's a perfect story. Yes, some people were better off, but a lot of people wound up in North Philly and in, in houses that were where they got the check and the people never fed them. We actually, I actually worked with a wonderful nun called Kathleen Schneider and a John O'Brien from Holy Souls in North Philly. We actually, Kathleen would visit the homes and she would uncover terrible situations where people, where the food and refrigerator was rotting, people were not being cared for, there was no medical assistance for them. But the owner was an absentee owner who would take their check and cash their check because the money followed the, the person after they were left out of library and, and, and put into these boarding homes. And so then she would come back and she would tell us and we would raid them with the press. There was, and we actually uncovered a number of very bad situations mm -hmm. where somebody was making $100,000 a year basically by not reporting. <laughs> so when people died, they, she would continue to cash the social security checks. <laughs> so anyway, from, from there, I wound up the... Uh, going to work for Father Joseph Kikalik at the Philadelphia Council of Neighborhood Organizations. And we had a, we had a, a real, we had a real wonderful list of presidents and vice presidents. So Kikalik was the president. We had Eversley Vaughn. We had Sister Falaka Fatah. We had um, people from a variety of communities. We had, I'm trying to think of the... Uh, Eddie Schwartz, was that there? Ed Schwartz, Ed Schwartz was, was one of our vice presidents, absolutely. Mm -hmm. This was before he was a councilman. This was before, and I would drive Ed home. Because, I don't know if you know this, but Ed never got a driver's license. Never got a driver's license. So I drove Ed home quite often from our meetings. And we would, I would have, oh man, he would just regale me with all kinds of stories. And of course, mm -hmm. uh, his wife, uh, Jane Schultz, Mm -hmm. right. became, became a, a rock star when it came to AIDS action. Mm -hmm. uh, and she's, I don't know if she still is, she's still, still yeah. around, but, but Jane was, Jane was, Jane was amazing. So we had wild executive committee meetings with our vice presidents. It was, it was a wild time, but anyway, 
one of the things that we did then was we began to, we had this guy named John Parvinsky. We hired him. He was married to a woman named Tenley Stilwell, who was one of my organizers. And John, we hired to do research on the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act. And through his tremendously good, accurate research, we were able to go after banks on redlining. And we wound up signing redlining agreements with Gerard Bank, uh, with PSFS, with Todd, Todd Cook and PSFS, with Core States, Terry Larson. Um, and that's how I got to know Fred Helgren, and which will come later in my story. But these, these uh, redlining agreements occurred in the late 70s and early 80s. Really, I guess it was the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were they were they were agreements in which we had to have the the bank president sign the agreement. And I remember the guy from Gerard, I forget his name, said to me, I said, well, can we just shake hands on this? And I said, no, no, this is like a prenup. We have to sign it because I know you love me and I love you, but we still have to have this in writing. And that, that he, he laughed and he said, you know what? I get you. And he signed it. So that was that was really a great apocryphal story about that situation. The trouble was, is that uh, that job was just an 80 hour a week, four nights a week. I'm out on the road meeting with people all over the city. And uh, we had a couple of run-ins with Wilson Good, because as you know, at the time, uh, Mayor Green was really uh, sort of, he was sort of less than interested in in the go, in the uh, really the nitty gritty of city administration. Whereas the managing director, Wilson Good, was right there. He wanted, he knew everything. He was into the budgets. So we would have this, so we had this confrontation with Wilson Good. We said, we want to have a meeting with you. We want to discuss the budget. We want to discuss where you're going to put the money. He said, fine, I'll have a meeting with you. We said, great. When? He said, Saturday, 7.30. And that's what he did to us. He said, 7.30 on a Saturday morning. So he really, he put it to us. And, there's a rumor that, that when he became mayor, that he would also have those 7 and 7.30 meetings with his staff. The thing about it was he really understood. It's a shame. Well, of course, as we know, he messed things up pretty badly. But, but as, a, as an administrator, he knew the city. He knew the budget. He knew where the money was going. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, that part about him, I salute him tremendously. Around 1983, 84, uh, I started, I, well, actually, yeah, about that time, I'd been there since 81, and Father Kikalik, uh, was. we were doing some good things, but I was just burning out, and I was looking around to take a break, and I decided that I would try to apply to go to grad school, and I didn't want to get an MBA, that's not what I was, but I found this program at the Woodrow Wilson School, formerly known as the Woodrow Wilson School, now known as the Princeton School for Public and International Affairs. They've dropped the name Woodrow Wilson because he was a racist. But um, other than that, so I went there and applied and got in. And uh, it was a it was a, quite a miracle there that I got in. And I went off to grad school and I spent 84th to 86 uh, at Princeton. When I came out, Fred Heldring said, come to work for us uh, at the Greater Philadelphia International Network. Now, GPIN had been started in 1979 by uh, a bunch of, uh, of folks that were really focused on internationalizing Philadelphia. So it was people like Henry Went at Smith Klein. Henry Went, Henry was, was really into that. Stan Hope Brown at Deckard. Tom Morris also at Deckard. David Maxey at Drinker. You know, the folks at Core States and a number of other firms. There was a, uh, Sean O'Malley was also an accountant. He had spent some time in Japan. And these guys really felt that Philadelphia was missing the boat on international business attraction and just 
just being attractive internationally to companies and to and to and to individuals. There was, thanks to Stanhope Brown, a French American Chamber of Commerce, which was which was uh, active before I took the job. But this group was ahead of their time. I, the director of the of the GPIN was named Lee Stull, and Lee was a former diplomat, and uh, I, he was a a glider pilot during the Normandy invasion, shot down over France and captured by the Germans. He had a broken leg, was treated by a German doctor. As the Normandy invasion continued and the American troops came across France, periodically the Germans deciding that they were gonna get captured would surrender to Lee so that they wouldn't be shot. So he would he would take them as his captives and then there would be a German counteroffensive, and suddenly the Germans would say, nope, we're no longer captives. You're our captive now. And this, this happened a couple of times. And Lee wound up being a, Lee was fluent in German, which, is, which helped him to survive. And you, if you look at the very famous iconic speech by John F. Kennedy at the Berlin Wall, Ich ein Berliner, Lee Stull is about 10 feet behind Kennedy, and he's 6'4", and you could just see him standing there because he was part of that, uh, part of that historic vision, uh, mission by JFK. So anyway, Lee was a great uh, diplomat. Lee came up with the idea of let's bring a part, a, a major part of the UNIAC computer invented in Philadelphia to Kyoto, Japan to celebrate uh, a specific a tech festival that they were having there. He organized to bring a couple of tons of the UNIAC computer to, to Kyoto, Japan. And that was just the beginning of a series of efforts that involved the Philadelphia Orchestra, the Barnes Foundation paintings, the ENIAC computer uh, celebration, et cetera. So Lee left, let's see, 1987, I guess it was, 88, and I became the director. And I began to, do, to, to hook up with the orchestra as they were traveling around the world. And I would use the orchestra to entertain companies I would give them tickets and they would come and I would talk to them about investing in Philadelphia. And GPIN was, uh, you know, with all these bankers and accounting firms and lawyers, I had a bunch of contacts whenever I went to Europe. The other important thing to remember is that Pennsylvania had an office in Germany at the time, and it was in Frankfurt. And a guy named Tom Beyer was the head of it. And Beyer was responsible for trying to uncover companies that might be interested in coming to Philadelphia. Unfortunately, we didn't have any air service to Philadelphia from Frankfurt, whereas, whereas eventually we did with U.S. Airways. But in the beginning, we didn't have any service. So it was really hard to recruit, whereas they could go to Charlotte, they could go to Boston, they could go to New York. Um, and this was, a, this was a problem. So we, we spent a lot of time working to try to get air service to the major capitals in Europe. And I met with you know, lots of companies, first of all, majorly in Germany and then in France and then in England. My, my deputy director, Danielle Thomas Easton, was a fluent French speaker. She was born in Lille in France. And eventually she became the honorary consul for France in Philadelphia. Stanhope Brown was the first honorary consul. People like Tom Morris uh, and Dave Maxey, they were, they were really interested in getting Philadelphia known internationally. So GPIN began to uh, make a very aggressive push. We, we took materials. In fact, I have some of these. I actually found some things. We have this, this brochure here, which is called Philadelphia and the Healthcare Industry, 
and we translated it into four languages, Japanese, German, and French. We started taking a whole bunch of materials and making sure that we could market to other folks. And at the same time, we were, we were in the same offices as Greater Philadelphia First, but we were not part of it. Greater Philadelphia First, Ralph Widener, that started in, I believe, 1982 was when it first started. And I started in 86. So Ralph Widener was just about leaving then when John Claypool, who was his deputy director of economic development, was involved in an aggressive effort to attract Eastman Kodak to the Philadelphia area. John was successful in doing that. And it was interesting because Lee Stull from GPIN, Greater Philadelphia International Lectures, was the key person for attracting the first Ikea store in the United States to Plymouth meeting. The first Ikea store. Now, college students all over America should bow down and thank Lee for doing that, right? Yep. Um, and all of us who put together those damn cabinets and bookcases. But the, that's- You the first sound store. thankful, Fred. What's that? You don't, you don't sound thankful about that. No, actually, actually, it was a great thing because that effort to get Ikea to come to Philadelphia gave us a little bit more of our reputation overseas. Now, I mean, and then Eastman Kodak, John Claypool did that. And then eventually Ralph left and John became managing director of Greater Philadelphia first. And I was the man, I was the managing director at GPIN. And in 1994, we merged all the, we merged the organizations. So there was one name, Greater Philadelphia first. Some of my folks were not happy. They thought that the international aspect <laughs> would get lost, but I don't think it did. I mean, we lost a little bit, but not much because the resources for our budget came mostly from GPF and GPF was supported by major corporations. I don't know if you guys remember Bob Hall from the Philadelphia Inquiry, he's a publishing company. Yeah. He was one of the chairmen, you know, and Terry Larson and Sam McCullough. And these guys were, I wanna make this point, Greater Philadelphia First was really, was not a chamber. It was not interested in what a chamber is typically interested in, which is small business and selling services and, and basically doing you know, positive attraction efforts. Greater Philadelphia First was, saw itself as a CEO reform organization like the Allegheny Conference, like Cleveland Tomorrow, like other major corporate organizations in other major cities. And the idea behind it was that you would bring the CEOs of, of companies that were either headquartered or had a major presence in Philadelphia. And that's why GPF from 1986 through 19, I would say 96, we really had an, a, a very positive influence uh, in the region. Again, this was not something, there were some people that felt that it was unnecessary, but it was certainly one I found that it had uh, had a real positive influence. Um, I was just going to ask you, uh, you, you sound as if, or you're telling us about international uh, putting together with Philly and, and other European major cities and corporations. How did you then end up working to get a new superintendent for the Philadelphia school system? Well, it, I mean, my job as director of economic development for Greater Philadelphia First was to focus on selling the region. So I was out there selling what was good about the Philadelphia region. I was traveling with the orchestra to China, with the Barnes Foundations, 
around to France when we did an exhibit with the Musée d'Orsay. Because you remember the Barnes Foundation paintings were on, were on a, an international tour while they were refixing the Barnes house, the, the, the home of, of, of the Barnes uh, in Lower Merion. And of course, eventually, thank God, they moved to the uh, parkway. But there was a whole nother part of Greater Philadelphia first that was focused on what can we do to fix the issues that companies keep bringing up that they have, that they have trouble with. And one of the biggest issues was education. They felt that the Philadelphia public schools were not producing the kinds of graduates that we needed to have in order to be a competitive region. And so that's how they got engaged. Now, I was not in the forefront of that because they hired Valerie Phillips to help work on that. And so that was a that was really John Claypool and those folks focused on, on that part. And again, you know, Greater Philadelphia First was also managing the Liberty Medal. I mean, that was part of our that was part of our responsibility too. So every year we were we, we were part of that process to pick the Liberty Bell, the Liberty Medal winners. We also had a huge festival around the, the 50th anniversary of the ENIAC computer being developed in Philadelphia. So there was promotion, you know, let's sell the product that we have. And then there was, let's fix the product that we have. And we, we hired the Stanford Research Institute and did a whole study about the important clusters that were available in Philadelphia. Obviously, the healthcare biomedical side was, was most prominent. And when I went to Japan and talked to Japanese companies with uh, my friend Quincy Williams from Fujisawa Smith Klein, he and I traveled to Japan twice a year for about four years to meet with Japanese pharmaceutical companies because they saw the tremendous research capabilities uh, that were available in Philadelphia. But again, we couldn't escape the fact that our Philadelphia school system was not graduating folks that were going on to college in the same numbers as other cities. We were not keeping our college graduates. Many of them were leaving. And remember at this time, this was when manufacturing was leaving the Northeast and heading to the South and then leaving the South and heading out to the Far East. So that process, you know, just raised all kinds of problems. And eventually a lot of the headquarters companies in Philadelphia were no longer headquarters. Uh, they were bought up by other conglomerates or they've closed down. So the idea of the, the deindustrialization of the Northeast was on our topic was a topic we focused on a lot. And we did see, and thank God we saw it then because it's come to fruition now in 2021, the Eds and Meds, we knew that they were, the, they were gonna be the cornerstone of Philadelphia's future. Now we didn't see it as big as it's turned out to be, but we did, we did see some of it and we emphasized the importance of, and, and a guy named Papadakis at Drexel, he, he almost doubled the enrollment at Drexel in a big way. And of course, then later John Fry came in and, and of course he's, he's made big investments in Drexel. And now, as far as I know, Joe, in West Philadelphia, according to the data, I see there's 80,000 jobs in a square mile, mm -hmm. one square mile in West Philadelphia. It's absolutely huge. And they're, and they're bringing more and more in there too. Tomorrow, I'm, I'm supposed to speak with Professor Hartfee, who I think is was one of the creators of Eds and Meds out at Penn. And I guess he's 
with the uh, Netter School out there. So I'm glad you brought that up because it seems as if nobody really knows what that is. And um, I'm hoping to convince uh, Professor Hartfee to sort of come in and talk to us about it because it, people don't understand how many good paying jobs are in the city or have remained in the city because of this uh, I don't know what you want to call it, program or social, but the program. And so it's very interesting you would bring that up tonight. I am currently a senior advisor to the e-consult group. Steve Mullen and Dick Boyce and those guys, they've done a great job. They've done some research on the possibilities of labor growth uh, in, the, in the cell research and manufacturing area and the amount of lab space that's becoming you know, taken up. And it's just wonderful to see, I mean, the opening of the new Penn Medicine Pavilion. They're currently looking for 1,500 new jobs. They're hiring that many people. It's, it's an enormous facility. I, I just saw some slides that look at it. It's really a beautiful facility. But remember that years and years ago, the University City Science Center was conceived of as a catalyst for bringing in companies that would be commercialized out of Penn and Drexel, and and the, and the hospital, and eventually grow and take take facilities. But and Centacor, I don't know if you remember, Centacor was one of those companies that grew up in West Philly, but eventually went out to the suburbs. This took thirty or forty years, but uh, and Penn was was behind many other places in commercializing the technology that was developed by researchers and professors, faculty at Penn. But now. It's got it's going gangbusters. And the cell therapy Philadelphia is you know world renowned now. And given the uh, COVID nineteen and the RNA and all this stuff, this is this is uh, a great time. But you're right, Peter. There's also a whole lot of other jobs that are for low and middle moderate income people. You know, lab techs, health techs. You know, animal techs. There's, there's just a whole lot of jobs out there that are really important. And the West Philadelphia Skills Initiative, my hats off to Matt Bergheiser and his team. They've done just a great job out there in getting people into the, the facility, the institutions that are hard to deal with. I mean, at any given time, the University of Pennsylvania has between six and 800 openings, but it's really hard to figure out how you get, if you're a West Philadelphia mm -hmm. resident, how you, you, know, you know, navigate yourself into that position. And that's where West Philadelphia skills has become so important. Um, yeah, they've been so, a great, great asset to the whole community. And, and as well as feeding and finding employees, training them and getting them those jobs right away into CHOP and, and all the other uh, healthcare initiatives that are going on there. I want to add to the 38th and Lancaster out to Market Street. They're building like 4 million square feet of real estate out there. Science Center has got a piece of that. Public schools actually have a piece of Science Leadership Academy in middle school. Penn's got to stop. They're going to be doing more research, more conferencing, more business development out there. You know, in, initially, the Science Center struggled because it was, trying to, it was trying to be a place for innovation, but essentially it was a real estate project. And, and the real estate, you know, you had you had to rent out the real estate in order to make the make it go. But uh, and I when I worked with them, they had a, uh, a guy named Tim Weckeser worked with Randall Whaley. We had a relationship with the Kyoto Science Research Park, and they modeled their park over the University City Science Center. 
and the, we went out there for its opening and it was it was fantastic but again some things don't gel immediately and the university city science center didn't gel immediately and then with some new people john dupree came in there's a few other folks came in and eventually the, the commercialization of technology and the attractiveness of the growth of CHOP and the Monell Chemical Sciences Center, the, the Veterans Administration Hospital, Penn Medicine, Drexel, all that combination came together to create a, uh, I guess you call it a virtuous circle. Fred, tell us about, I, I know you were instrumental in organizing the 50th anniversary of ENIAC. And I remember the pictures of ENIAC being this big ass computer would fill a whole room, right? That was as powerful as one of our cell phones today. But back then, it was big stuff. Talk to us about that. What came out of that? I guess the ENIAC was supposedly operationalized in 1946. So 1996 would be the 50th anniversary. If you read about the history of computers, you'll have a lot of folks that claim that they were the first computer. So there's always controversy, but ENIAC certainly deserves a place in that history, a major place. The problem, of course, was that the ENIAC is about 10 tons of electrodes and, and cast iron. So it, and it sits in the University of Pennsylvania. It's not very mobile, but the idea was, why don't we, why don't we claim fame for ourselves? And so we began to work with a whole bunch of folks around the country who wanted to celebrate the ENIAC. And some of them wanted to celebrate it in, in a variety of ways. One of them, I think one of the things we actually did in Philly was have a, uh, an IBM computer play chess with one of the chess masters. I don't know who it oh, was. Yeah, but... I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that was, I remember that when I, but what we wanted to do was just to have a celebration and invite people from all over the country draw attention. That's what we did. And we worked closely with uh, David Cohen and the Rendell administration but it was basically uh, my outfit, the Greater Philadelphia First. Uh, we, we put it on and it was had, we, we had like 400, 500 people at dinner at the convention center. And it was, it was uh, I think pretty successful, except we had, things going well until we had the keynote speaker who turned out to be really boring. But other than that, we had a very successful event and uh, I was very proud of that. And it was ironic that later on, David Cohen, of course, who was, who was uh, part of that, went to work for Comcast. And Comcast winds up being, you know, a major internet company, you know, with, uh, in, in, in the United States and now owns Peacock and NBC and NBC Universal. And we actually- yeah, And he's the ambassador to Canada now. And now he's the ambassador to Canada. That's pretty good because uh, my wife's from Canada. So I'm going to, I'm going to write to David and, you know, I want him to get out. I want him to if he thinks Canada is Montreal and Ottawa, he's got a big lesson coming. <laughs> My wife's from Saskatchewan. You were talking about the, your trip to China. And earlier we were talking about, you know, it's one of the first attempts by someone in the United States going into China. Actually, it's the return, right? After the Nixon yeah. and Kissinger opened up the but China Nixon, market. Nixon and Kissinger opened up China. I, I believe the Philadelphia Orchestra was the first orchestra to go into China after the opening. Uh, so I believe it was somewhere around 1972, I think was when they went, was when they went to China. And so the 25th anniversary, we used that as a way to go to piggyback on that trip to China. So my story is this, I truck the orchestra was going to perform at the Great Hall of the People. Now, have any of you been at the Great Hall of the People? <laughs> 
Well, the Great Hall of the People is a huge, it's a huge facility. It's not an orchestra hall at all. It's really, it was amazing. So what happened was, is that I tried to get a ticket, but you know, they, they really were having difficulties. But anyway, a couple of the orchestra members snuck me in the back door of where the orchestra entrance was, which is, you know, in communist China, that's a pretty big deal. I thought I might get arrested. But mm -hmm. the only place I could sit was way, way up in the back. So I'm sitting there and I could barely see the, the performers because they're, they're a long way away in the front and all the dignitaries are there and everything. It's a big deal for the orchestra to come back. And I'm looking, I'm listening and I hear these, these people, they're opening Coke cans, you know, psh, psh. and I'm like, what? and they're talking away. And of course, they're so far away. For them, it was just like, it was like, a, it was like watching a concert you know, of the four tops or the, you know, the <laughs> blood, sweat and tears or something, you know? And so they're up there drinking their Cokes and they're laughing and everything. And so that was the most informal orchestra concert I'd ever heard in my life. From there, we went to Shanghai. And in, and in Shanghai, they actually performed in what's called a gymnasium, where two weeks before the Pan-Asian track meet had been held. So that was the next stop. On this on this very uh, uh, important tour, and that was, and I, I wound up I wound up taking down a um, a poster because, and the reason this poster was important was because the orchestra had arranged for Cigna Insurance Company to sponsor the tour, mm. and everything, all of the publicity had to be connected to Cigna. Well, as it turned out, the Chinese didn't accept that. So they wound up promoting their companies on the posters. Mm -hmm. So the poster has Cigna, but it has a bunch of Chinese companies on it as well. So I still have a copy of it. One of the things that we tried to do, Joe, was to promote exports as well. When I was at Greater Philadelphia International Network, it wasn't just trying to attract investment. It was also trying to open up markets. And so part of our approach in Asia especially was the, the Chinese market, Japanese were very tough to export to Japan, but the Chinese were much more interested in American products. So that's, that's why we use the orchestra visit and other visits to Asia. The Barnes Foundation paintings came to Tokyo. That, that's again, how we marketed uh, the greater Philadelphia region. Yeah. Do you remember any outcomes that, that came about with that and any, any big deals that were struck? Well, there, there, there are a number of Japanese pharmaceutical companies eventually made joint ventures in the Philadelphia region. I could probably look into my research, but nothing, nothing big like Kodak. Mm -hmm. SAP America was one of the ones we worked on from Germany, but that was really, but that of course was not from Asia. A number of the Japanese pharmaceutical companies were very conservative because the Japanese government was continuously cutting the cost of, of their of products because they had an aging population and they didn't want their products to be too expensive for the for the elderly in Japan. Mm -hmm. So the, the amount of money that they had available for research was very low. So they wanted to come to the U.S. to do research. Um, and that's what they did. They set up joint ventures with, in the, with the research triangle, with some, with some companies, uh, with Boston. Philadelphia was a little bit behind on that because they didn't, we didn't have that kind of availability for uh, contracted research, but eventually that changed. Let me, let me switch subjects a, a little bit. What, what's your experience and memory about where corporate leadership was vis-a-vis -vis 
You got Ed Rendell coming in. He inherits a multi-million dollar budget deficit. The city is going to hell in a handbasket. The poverty rate is tremendous. And you got people leaving Philadelphia because it looks like the school district is bad and families don't want to put their kids there. And any experience, the GPS, GP, yeah, GPS and, and the corporate leadership get involved in addressing those issues and trying to bring Philadelphia steer it a different direction? That was a major agenda item that we talked about all the time. Mm. Because now, of course, we had to look at it from a regional point of view. So some parts of the region were actually doing okay. You know, Great Valley and was doing, was attracting a lot of small and medium-sized companies, a lot of healthcare, pharmaceutical, even high-tech high tech companies, SAP America went out there. It was a, it created some tension with the city because, you know, we would get a prospect and we wanted, we would want to attract it to the region. So we had a, we had to show that prospect other possibilities. And in Philadelphia, there was a limited amount of real estate and some of it was not as attractive as Great Valley or, you know, parts of Chester County or parts of Bucks County, Montgomery County. So it was, they created some tension about which, what we were selling we wanted to get the company, but we also wanted to get it. Philadelphia needed the jobs. So, but there was no question that people like Terry Larson and Bob Hall and, uh, and the folks on Greater Philadelphia First really wanted to help Philadelphia address some of its major challenges. But again, you know, there was a limited amount. You, had, you have a mayor. You don't have a mayor of Montgomery County. Yeah. Uh, you know, Fred, uh, that's interesting because one of the things that we began talking about is sort of a curse that the city has, is that unlike any other city in the state, we are a county. So you're limited by the borders. In, in, let's just say in Houston, you have Houston, but it's in a big county. So the, the, the suburbs that you're talking about would have been part of you know, in Houston would have been part of Philadelphia, could have been part of Philadelphia County. But way back when we wanted to be the big shot in the state. And it really has ended up hurting us job wise. It's hurt us educationally and it's hurt us uh, financially because uh, we're able, we're not able, but we are pointed to as Sodom and Gomorrah by the rest of uh, the Pennsylvania legislature. And we get shortchanged with money for schools and a lot of other things, and we're poor for it. Yeah, and but we also shot ourselves in the foot sometimes because... <laughs> yeah, oh, uh, there's no doubt about that. Well, it, it's not exactly that Philadelphia doesn't have any corruption. Um, well, we've uh, talked about that all the way up to Stinson. We're, we're going further. Where do you want yeah. to just mean and try? But, but, but to your point, Peter, the, the, city, the city suburb tension was, was real. That's probably one of the reasons why I eventually left Greater Philadelphia first, because I wanted to work on fixing the product, not just selling it. And the problem was, is that it was the research that we did with the Stanford SRI, Stanford Research Institute, that uncovered the, our, the strength of our clusters, also uncovered some of our weaknesses, right? Now, one of the things that I think Philadelphia and Rendell did really, really well was try to make Philadelphia a more exciting, interesting place for people from the suburbs to come and participate in. And you could probably argue that maybe the convention center was oversold, 
I remember the first time it was built, it was going to be the answer to all of our problems. And then they added the extension. That was also going to be the answer. But thank God it got done because it's really an important part. And the Kimmel Center, you know, et cetera. So the good thing is, is that Philadelphia still, through all that, it has a, a critical mass of institutions that attract people into the city. Now, the pandemic, of course, has changed a lot of that. But we'll see. There are, as you can tell with young people, some young people, they don't want to be in Chester County. They don't want to be in Bucks County. They want to be in Fishtown. They want to be in Port Richmond. They want, you know, they want to be where the, you know, where the urban grid is. And uh, so I, I hope that, you know, that part is what I'm what I'm worried about, though, is that the ability of the of the corporate sector, the, the business community to, to have a influence on some of the challenging issues like the homicide rate in the schools is is very limited now you know it, it's it's the, the chamber is of course focused on attracting still attracting companies which is very important select philadelphia does a good job of marketing the region but that corporate leadership that used to be there is is just not there anymore and i think that there's a there's an opening for you know maybe some young corporate leaders to step up and say you know what we want to make this city better and we, we, we want to help you make it better. You know, I, I just don't see that happening just yet. Well, what, one of the things that I've, I've seen while I'm doing my deep dives into this is one of the places that is really exploding uh, with new businesses or businesses that are sort of being born is a Navy Yard. It's incredible that they're, what they've done there. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, first-class facilities. I know that I think it's Jefferson does almost all their surgery out there. And there is a company, an outfit called Mosaic. I believe it's a Black-owned business. Uh, they're building all sorts of uh, houses out there, uh, which they predict it's going to employ a lot of people. And then you've got the new, uh, the, the remediation of the, I, guess, I forget what it's called, uh, out where the, the oil drums are. That's what I call it. Uh, that there, there's a big, uh, it's called the Bellwether Center that they just announced. So there are things that are, are going on that uh, uh, you talked about growth. Uh, I see it coming. Uh, I'm hoping that we have the workforce that will support it. I mean, right now, the workforce is a, a major problem in every part of the country. And, you know, it's really, it's really important that the folks in Philadelphia deal with all of the tens of thousands of young people who are not connected in any way to the workforce. We have some great trends going on here in West Philly, the Navy Yard, Kensington area, you know, uh, Fishtown and Othi. But the fact of the matter is there's a tremendous amount, tremendous number of young people who have no connection and no stake in the future of this city because they're still disconnected. And there's been a lot of progress. I think the Philadelphia Youth Network has done some good work. Joe probably knows better than me, the organizations that are doing some, but the number of people who are just not, you know, they're out of school, they're not working and they don't have a way to survive or to work. Um, they don't have the skills and they're not connected to the workforce system. So maybe this uh, build back better will provide some additional workforce development funding. Joe, what do you think? We will see. We will see on that stuff. Not a lot of money. There's some, but not a, not a lot. I mean, the states and the counties get to, there's a lot of flexible dollars there, so they could. 
at the local level, make that decision and use some of those funds for, for work. For I, you know, I really, I really think that the, there ha we have to have a new generation of leaders that step up because uh, reading about the uh, current trial going on uh, that talks about how influence is made in this city mm -hmm. uh, is, uh, is, uh, is, is certainly incredibly revealing. Now, it's an old story, but, and the good news is that I don't think anybody outside of Philadelphia is reading much about it. But boy, right. if you're paying attention to it, it's like, oh yeah, we knew this was going on, but we didn't have it, we didn't have it on tape. Now we have it on tape. It well, may not be so criminal. Fred, we do things differently here. So Fred, what, what happened to uh, GPS, Greater Philadelphia First? Why did it demise or did it fold into something else? Again, I, I as I left and I went, mm -hmm. I, after I left GPF, I went to work for the reinvestment fund. Joe and I worked there together. We worked on a variety of projects, especially workforce development. We put out reports on the work on the on the on the region workforce development study in 2000, 2001, 2002, and eventually I I published uh, with the help of some really great staff at TRF a an analysis of the entire budget for workforce development in the in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. something like three billion dollars. And I laid it, we laid it out in an Excel spreadsheet and it got a lot of attention. And when Rendell got elected governor, he wanted to fix the fact that that money was not yielding a whole lot of outcomes that he could put his finger on. So he asked, uh, he hired Sandy Vito as his deputy secretary for workforce and mm -hmm. Sandy hired me as the director of the state workforce investment board. And at the time, Greater Philadelphia First, I think was transitioning from John Claypool and I think it was uh, Sam Katz that took that took on the job after that. And, and you know, my uh, this is probably on, in the area of urban legend, Peter. But my understanding is that what happened is is that the Chamber of Commerce really convinced the leadership of Greater Philadelphia first that there was no need for two organizations, that the Chamber could do what Greater Philadelphia first was doing, and that the, because they were overlapping board members, you know, mm -hmm. people like Fred DeBona were very active in the chamber. Charlie Peasy, who is now at Tasty Baking, was very active in the chamber, very active at Great. So, they moved down to the, to the airport, uh, to, the, to the Navy Yard too. So I think what happened is that they would, you know, they, they convinced the board and Sam Katz that they should merge. And basically what happened, it was, a, it was, a, it was really a takeover, not a merger, because what happened is, is that the chamber basically took over Greater Philadelphia first and created something called Select Greater Philadelphia, right. which, is, which, is what, which is the attraction side of the operation. But the, the, the part about advocacy for the region's economic development in general, the issues around education, the issue around workforce development, the issue around taxes, that all got lost. Uh, the chamber now is really basically a, a membership organization that has a lot of influence. I mean, I know that in, you know, in Harrisburg, people listen to the chamber. It's not, it again, it's a regional operation. Um, so it's not specifically focused on the city of Philadelphia. But I, I, I just am not as familiar with what they've done in the last 10 or 15 years. So I'd rather not go any further than saying that 
you know, I think the chamber, uh, I think Greater Philadelphia first was uh, subsumed by the chamber because the chamber felt that there was, that they could do the job just like Greater Philadelphia first. Sounds like they did, might have lost something in that. So I remember when Select Philadelphia was first organizing, some dynamic people were hired to run that thing, but it just seemed that the CEO focus was not there like it used to be. No. Well, I, and part of that to be fair to the chamber, was that a lot of CEOs, but there were fewer and fewer CEOs in the Philadelphia, city of Philadelphia, because comp- banks were taken over and they were not headquartered in Philly. And companies like SmithKline Beecham became Smith, you know, SmithKline, GlaxoSmithKline. And so that was that was now headquartered in, Lo- in London. And they, they downsized some of the facility, Crown Cork and Seal, Bill Avery, that organization eventually was taken over by another one. So you lost a lot. And then, of course, the, the merger of the accounting firms and the expansion of the law firms, the law firms became like Morgan Lewis is, a, is an international firm now. I mean, yes, it's still headquartered in Philly and the managing director is still in Philly. It's got a major presence in England and France, Washington, D.C. You know, it's all over the place. So its attention to its home location is less than what had been in the past. And so that also, I think, made people think, well, you know, Greater Philadelphia First, really, there isn't, there aren't that many CEOs left that have the authority to make independent decisions for their corporation. That's what mm-hmm. eventually went away. And, and to be honest, the political ramifications for, for managing directors to make decisions about a you know a situation like the public schools or a hiring of this or criticizing the mayor that became fraught with all kinds of concerns that you mm-hmm. didn't want to mess up your reputation as an organization by getting involved in the the nitty gritty politics. Um, whereas when Henry Went was the head of this line, he didn't have to worry. When Terry Lawson was the head of Core States, he didn't have to worry about someone above him telling him to shut up. You know, he was the top. That's that's a big, big change in, in Philadelphia. Yeah. Absolutely. We're running up against our hour, guys. This has been absolutely tremendous. Fred, any, any last comments you want to leave us with? No, just that I think that what people should be very proud of the fact that there was a group of corporate leaders, you know, back in the, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, who really understood that the world was becoming more global and that they that they made a really strong effort. And now we have the Japan America Society of Greater Philadelphia just has merged recently with the, with the Japanese house and garden folks. And that's a strong organization that was started, you know, back then with, I, we, I was on the first board, the British American Chamber, French American Chamber, the German American Chamber, Swiss American, all these chambers of commerce internationally were, were the vision of people who saw the world as it was coming. And uh, it's helped Philadelphia become a much more of an international city. And thank God we now have service to all over the world and mm-hmm. through our airline. So we've come a long way. Um, and there's now good places to eat as well. There That's are a true. lot of good places to eat. Yeah, uh, you know, you know I, I'm really thankful that you came on with us because I think, and maybe Joe agrees or disagrees, that there are a lot of the things that you talk about, people are blind to because they they don't really see much except for what's in front of their eyes. And they're not seeing that there's there's this tremendous business community 
that's been created and is there to help. And that's sort of a shame uh, that people don't see it, but you clearly see it and you saw it from the beginning. So I'm really happy for, for you to have you here. I think there's another generation of business leaders. I've met some of them in the last five years or so since I, I, was, I lived in Boston for three years, came back to Philly, and, and I've seen some of them. And I think that the next generation of leaders will, will be able to hopefully you know, be, be a part of the next renaissance in Philadelphia because we've come a long way since I moved here in 73. Absolutely love this town. And uh, this, is, this is my hometown now. So I, I'm, I'm happy to continue working to try to make it better. Thanks again, Fred. Really appreciate this stuff. Let's do it again sometime when we get into the, the 2000s and all. Let's, uh, let's pick your brain and talk about the world at that time. Yeah, I'd love to have you again. All right. Well, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be, hopefully I'll be around, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, we can, we, can pick a, we can pick a night when I haven't coached the girls in soccer and that might have more energy. <laughs> there you go. Thanks. Bye. Again. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.